you're not a victim. You're doing it. And when you're ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. Hello and welcome to the Humble You Podcast, where we talk all things mind, body, and life. This episode features a conversation with author, writer, podcaster, and recovery enthusiast, Annie Highwater. Annie has published two books that are currently available on Amazon. The first, Unhooked, is a mother's story of unhitching from the roller coaster of her son's addiction. The second, Unbroken, is about navigating through the madness of family dysfunction, addiction, alcoholism, and heartache. Annie currently resides in Columbus, Ohio, and enjoys writing, spending time with family, friends, and support groups, enjoys the great outdoors, and visiting her son in Southern California. So Annie, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Wow, thank you so much. I sound a lot more professional than I feel sometimes. I appreciate (laughs) the introduction. (laughs) And you're on two podcasts, so you do have a a bit of experience in this this realm. A little bit. (laughs) So before we dive into some of your wonderful work, uh, I want to read your mission statement. You write, there are more people affected by addiction than addicted. You believe people should go through this situation with somebody to help them, uh, guidance, providing a healthy dialogue and support. I believe it's a wonderful mission, and I'm curious about the story that led you towards this mission. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely believe there are more people affected by addiction than addicted. If you're specifically going to look at chemical addictions and the numbers, I have read that for every one person addicted to something like opiates, um, there's probably 15 people affected. Hmm. And I would say there'd be more. That's husband, wife, mom and dad, neighbors, family, friends, that's your coworkers. Um, it affects us on a larger level and, uh, and, what I've experienced personally and I've um, firsthand witnessed is that for those who are addiction adjacent or part of the so-called entourage of somebody that's addicted, you can go crazy and you're sometimes sicker than the person who's addicted. And I know, especially for a mom or a parent, it can make you so insane that you are climbing the walls in fear and worry and pain and guilt and regret and nostalgia and it, anything that's in you is triggered and it's like fire is poured on it. So Mm. that's kind of how I see it. And and I began doing the work because I've never been addicted to a chemical so much as I've been addicted to people who were. So I've been alongside addiction my entire life. I've not really had a day of my life not affected by somebody's addiction. I've got a mother who has battled addiction all of her life. And then my son went through a six year process with opiate addiction after a football injury and that was, you know, the nightmare that launched us forward into even worse circumstances. So, yeah, I can definitely speak from that experience. Yeah, and it seems like those experiences really led into your hope to publish books and help others. And it really fed into your purpose. Um, and, and seeing people from that aspect, uh, stepping outside of the addicted and looking at the addicted, someone you love and, and witnessing what they're going through, uh, very difficult to, 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 to see it and 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 to know that there's a better way out there. Well, yeah. And you know, you know, let's be honest, when I was in the midst of it, I was reading all the books about people who were addicted and overcoming it. My son wasn't, you know, and one thing that would help me greatly 
was when, you know, therapy is one thing, but when you've got somebody that can say, oh my goodness, I've been through exactly what you're going through and I know exactly what it feels like and I can tell you that there is an end to it or there is hope for it. So once I started kind of, I experienced that situation um, over and over again in what we call the rooms, the rooms of recovery, which would be Naranon, you know, um, pals or anything that supports family members. I started experiencing people who were sharing their stories and they were from all walks of life, doctors, judges, professors, stay-at-home wives, whatever, you know, every echelon of life. And they had experienced the same situation where it completely changes the trajectory of the entire family when that addiction comes in. I mean, you go through a process of it shuts you down and you're fighting it and battling it alone due to stigma and shame and it's all so new. And then you start hopefully educating yourself and getting some recovery and learning about it. And it really changes the path you're on. And I know a lot of people who went through it with a son or a daughter, or husband or wife, and it launched them from one area of professional life into another. And it kind of all bottlenecked, which is what happened for me. I had worked in corporate insurance. I am now, I work for an insurance company during the day doing peer support for people affected by addiction. But it also launched my writing and podcasting because I started talking about it. And people wanted to hear, you know, somebody that had been through it had a success story or even was willing to talk about the hell that you go through. Hmm. Yeah. And we'll definitely get into the specifics or at least some of the specifics of the story. But yeah, dealing with addiction really is a, a, a life shifter, both internally and externally. So it affects yep. both sides of life. Yeah. It changes everything. It touches everything. And I'm I mean, wondering, even the friendships you have yeah. change. You oh, can't yeah. maintain the same lifestyle and friendships when you're going through that kind of hell, especially if you've got friends that don't understand or people will give you well-meaning advice, but they really don't know unless they've been trained in it or experienced it. So it can be damaging or upsetting. It changes everything. Yeah. And, and it's really powerful what you said about the conversation of experience. Uh, sometimes you don't need the expert. Uh, everyone's different. Some things work for others. And, and, and to just hear somebody's experience um, without all the the scientific background and 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 uh, education, it really can can shift your perspective. It can, you know. You've worked in um, in television before. I can't remember the man's name, but but I had had a panic attack while I was driving. So um, I have several brothers and some guy friends, and I was telling them about it. We were kind of laughing about it later that it was so kind of dramatic, mm. and and one of them had sent me this newscaster that had one on air. So, and then he went on to t tell the story and he talks about it. Now, I think he even wrote about it. It was in New York City. Something wow. like that on a larger level, just somebody, you know, when you share what you've been through and you're real about it, you, you disarm people to where they feel less alone and like they can be real. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're all trying to, to hold ourselves up and, and look the best we can. And it's tough to open up that heart inside. But when you do um, and you look internally, uh, such as Carl Jung says, um, you awaken. Yeah, right. So I'm wondering what led you into, you know, I understand it was the, the addictions of, of family members around you, especially your son and mother. Um, was there anything beforehand that had any interest in addictions or recovery or was it those two experiences? Um, it was pretty much that because it had been lifelong and a lot of people didn't know what I was experiencing. It wasn't because I was, you know, trying to, people would always tell me that my, my life reminded them of Glass Castle once they got that book, the woman who wrote that mm. book, once they had become familiar with my family's background. 
But one thing that was different about her story is that she was aware of it, but hid it and created a different persona. I never really did that. I was just, I was, you know, pretty real if you got close to me, but I was always just kind of surviving it and trying to get through it. And, you know, I'd been born into this big family. I was the youngest of six. My parents' marriage was violent and it was alcohol drenched with Mm -hmm. the first four kids. They got, um, they became religious with, and I say religious, not, you know, so much spiritual or or faith. They got into religious dogma after the fourth. um, And it was really condemning. They went through, got caught up in some prosperity preaching and things that, you know, didn't align with a healthy spiritual life. After that, so, but, but my father didn't drink and the violence stopped. So then the two youngest, which was my brother and I were born into this aftermath and into this cadence of misery that was in the home that nobody was really talking about. We still had struggled with that many kids. Um, my dad had health issues. My mom stayed home. She had, you know, trauma issues, mental issues. She was on pills all the time, so she didn't really work. And she was always kind of upset. You know, she would call it nervous breakdowns, things like that. Um, and kind of coping with this trauma that she had come out of. We were always in poverty. We were um, on welfare. We were moved from home to home to home. We Mm. went without. I would come home from school. Utilities would be shut off. I wasn't always tended to or bathed or things like that in the early years. And then, you know, I entered into middle school and I could take better care of myself. And I started becoming, you know, more aware and questioning those things and almost uh, bitter about them. And it caused some hate and rebellion toward my family in those ways. So I went on through my teen years. I had my son when I was 18 and I was like, it was kind of a wake up call to where I thought I will not in any way allow him to go through what I went through or have questions and nobody's talking. So I started doing kind of research in the library and I would read biographies and self help books and things like that. Anytime I could become friends with a therapist, if somebody's parent was a therapist or in a work setting, I would kind of cozy up to them to pick their brain. And I ended up becoming friends with a couple of them over the years. Hmm. And I just was trying to gather information and research how to come out of dysfunction and be more normal. So I spent kind of my 20s doing that. And I raised my son in private school. It was a different environment for him. He was an only child. Mm -hmm. His dad and I had gotten divorced, you know, but we had this really good united divorce and didn't have dysfunction. We both were in agreement. Neither house had booze in it. chaos or conflict. So kind of long story short, he um, got injured his junior year in Mm. football practice. He had a broken jaw and he was prescribed Percocets. Mm -hmm. And it was within about 30 days that it became a terrifying addiction, which kind of exposed at the same time adjacent to that, my mom's addiction. And all it was like everything in our family that had been dysfunctional or even below the surface ready to be dysfunction was ignited in the midst of that. The cover was taken off of everything and we Mm. were all a surging mess in the midst of trying to figure out how to handle this kid. Wow. So that was um, just coming out of the madness of it. I I had journals that I could stack to the ceiling of information and how I felt about things and what a pharmacist would tell me or a police officer, just (laughs) gathering, gathering, gathering and venting. And Mm. it was kind of what I spent my time outside of work doing. And I had gathered those and I was trying to heal my way forward and figure out how to handle him and how to be healthy myself. And that was a process of a couple of years. And I sought good counsel. He ended up going into recovery in about 2013. He went out to LA. He's been out there ever since. He's doing really well. He's created, he just loved life out there and created a life for himself. And 
we thought he'd go out there and come back and life would, you know, return to normal, but he went out there and loved it. So we just go visit him there. And, um, in the midst of that, in about 2015, I wrote an article based on our experience and it got published in an LA magazine, which led to a book being published and other articles, my second book, and then the piece with the Ohio State book. So that is kind of the madness and seeking to heal it and navigate it with some semblance of sanity, as well as talking about it once I had sufficient victory. Mm-hmm. I, I don't tend to talk about something when I'm in the midst of struggle. Yeah. And I try to, I'm pretty private until I'm ready to share something. Mm-hmm. But having shared an experience that big, and it's that prevalent in so many families began to get attention. And that's how kind of the writing and podcasting grew. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just going to bring up that the first book, it seems like a, a lot really led you to, to that book and, and you just almost were overwhelmed with the information you wanted to share. You wanted to help somebody. And in that book, um, each chapter is a round by round, almost like a boxing match. Yeah. Uh, so, to, so to say, I, I saw the boxing gloves in pink. It was a really right. cool cover. Um, <laughs> And in, in chapter 10, round 10, we'll call it, <laughs> that it's called in the book, uh, heading into the championship rounds, it's titled Life Calms Down, or, th- or so I thought. Um, I've had many moments in life where maybe I got a bit too confident and life threw me another lesson. Um, it, it never seems to calm down. It always seems to grow if you want to grow with it. Um, tell us a little bit more about that chapter. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but I definitely would think that we had things conquered. And I thought that a couple of times. Um, When my son went out to LA, I thought, well, he's in treatment. This is over. And you tend to think that. Mm -hmm. Well, they went to treatment. I've identified the problem. We have the answer. Now we'll go back to normal. But it's really almost just the beginning you're stepping into of everybody needing to do work to recover. Mm -hmm. And it was he began to work a process of his own therapy and recovery. And that was really the best thing for him because one thing recovery teaches is self-awareness. It's Mm. introspection. And you know, we we weren't taught that growing up. We were taught more to, you need to seek forgiveness or whatever, but most people hide their flaws. But when you go into a process of recovery, you start getting honest about them and your character defects. And then you're okay with them because you know, I'm just going to, um, I'm going to work to not repeat them, but I'm also going to ask for forgiveness and make amends and better myself in this area. So you start conquering the task of emotional intelligence as it relates to self-examination and introspection. And for him to be 21 years old and diving into that, it was the Mm. best thing that anyone could have handed him. So he went out there, but when he first got there, he relapsed. And I remember thinking, I remember feeling worse about his relapse than I did finding out he had a dependency in the first place because I thought, you know, just to be honest, I thought here I had done all the right things as the affected family member. I didn't enable him. Mm -hmm. I encouraged him toward treatment. I had the consequences and, and I worked on myself in the midst of it. And here he goes out there, you know, but wherever you go, there you are. He Mm -hmm. took all of his issues and desires with him. And that was a new learning process for him because if somebody, if we all, survive a relapse there's so much to be learned from it you can mm. look back and kind of backtrack what triggered it how it started and how where you need to toughen up and strengthen areas to prevent it next time but when he went out there and that happened that was kind of like a new layer of infection exposed wow yeah it's amazing how sometimes uh, like i talked about earlier my illness that's what got me going into psychology the mind awakening um, consciousness and and really diving into to my inner world. It's amazing that if you if you allow it, if you if you want to, you can use that as a motivation to move forward. 
And working with a lot of successful people, um, most, if not all, have had an experience that, that pushed them forward um, towards, towards, their, towards their success. Right. I agree. And, and, you know, it pushed me toward doing what I wanted to do with my life. Insurance was great. I enjoyed it. I liked working with people. I did well, but I wasn't looking to do that from childhood. It wasn't a lifelong dream of mine. I just wanted to provide for my family. But the, the biggest earthquake that hit in our life literally launched us all into the life we wanted. So I honestly could say, I don't wish it on any family. I don't want to go through a lot of the aspects of it again but I wouldn't change it at this point because we're all better for it and we're wiser for it. We're a lot healthier for it. My son and I, when you go through an experience like that, everything's been said. There's nothing nasty left to say. There's nothing left to apologize for or own up to from his childhood or my own. It's all been laid on the table and said. And not only that, we have lived with the fear of his death hanging over us, mm. a death I thought I was on the clock to prevent. When you're thrown into that level of acceleration emotionally, everything's kind of put out there. We've, we've settled it all. So now every conversation we have is current and fresh. If there's something to apologize for or own up to, we don't struggle to communicate in any way. All the tough stuff, we're just kind of in the ebb and flow of that being normal. We hit that threshold mm -hmm. of dealing with uncomfortable emotions and conversation. And on this side of it, that's just kind of the truth we live in. Yeah, and speaking of truth, facing the truth, um, that's a, that could be a tough thing for people. The truth can yeah. be harsh. And uh, I know you wrote something about facing the truth of a loved one. Um, yes. A lot of people put blinders on for the truth you wrote, um, especially in relation with their kids. Um, why do you believe this is true? Um, I think, I don't know if it's because it's so personal or you want to believe the best. Um, there's a lot of things. There's, I had written about something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. If you look into that, it's about a process of denial that we have. Mm -hmm. And I think that our mind has kind of shock absorbers that has a process it has to go through. I, I, wrote, a, I wrote a blog about um, being in denial, and I was talking about how many times you hear about somebody that's getting cheated on or they have a husband or wife that's chronically unfaithful, and you hear the phrase, they turn a blind eye. And I don't know if that's so much true that you're okay with something if for you that's not acceptable. If you're okay with something that unacceptable and painful, or it's the fact that you're just not ready to process the pain yet. And not only that, we tend to judge people based on our own patterns and mm -hmm. motives. Yeah. I don't tend to think somebody's going to outright lie to me or take from me or deceive me or do something wrong to me because I'm not going to do those things myself. Mm. I'm not going to tend to think somebody's hiding something or up to something unless that's what I'm doing too. We tend to look at people through our own lens. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of a lot of reasoning behind the fact that we can't look at truth really, you know, head on. Well, that's yeah. one of the things I always say on the side of it is that, you know, I don't like to just stick my feet into a swimming pool and wade in slowly. I like to jump all in at once and get it over with. And we're kind of like that with the truth now. Just mm. jump into it all at once and accept it if it's ugly. And, you know, a lot of times you, if you find out a truth and you accept it, as being true, you got to make some changes. Yep. If you've got a kid that's addicted, you got to face some things about yourself and you got to you got to make some decisions about them. If you find out a spouse is cheating, you've got some decisions to make. It could very well change your entire life. You know, and everyone's at different places with what's acceptable or not, mm -hmm. but I think all of that plays into why we are willing to see the truth or not. Definitely when the when the truth comes up and and and, and you don't want it to come up and you push it back down, it's almost accepting it back into your unconscious, your subconscious, back into your system and program. 
Um, right. And it doesn't just go away. It's yeah. it, the truth doesn't just go away. Yeah. It's going to flush itself out eventually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that release is, is, is just being truthful with it, being understanding and uh, making a step towards improvement. Like you just well, one said. thing I always say, I, I, I meet with a lot of family members. I always say, let's look at the fact that maybe this is possible. Even if you don't want it to be probable, mm -hmm. could it be possible that your son or daughter has relapsed? You know, if these behaviors are present again, could it be possible that your son or daughter is using substances, you know, or could it be possible that somebody is, you know, up to this or that in their life or this or that's going on? Is it possible if you start kind of cracking that door and introducing truth slowly, then things will start to show up and you're, you're maybe a little more equipped day by day to take it. Hmm. Definitely. So back to, uh, an addicted loved one, the process, uh, before they, I guess, recover or at least start the recovery process, it's a tough one. Um, I'm a former meteorologist, so I, I, I enjoyed one of your quotes. You said, arguing with an addicted loved one can be like reasoning with a hurricane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm wondering, uh, you know, what, 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 maybe just to expand on that a bit um, for those, especially those in that situation. I'd had a counselor say to me, never argue with some, you know, she, she had said her words, don't ever argue with an addict. That's their arena. That's what they use to distract you. And mm -hmm. if you start explaining or defending, they've got you because mm -hmm. whether it's money or a rider to believe them, if somebody is in active addiction, that's kind of their territory is conflict. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And, 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 you know, just like a hurricane, you don't want to mess with the hurricane. It's, it's in its own path and, uh, anything in its way could could be destroyed. That's right. And, you know, I foolishly admit that I was, um, I argued with my mom at some point every single day for just about 20 years mm. over issues of the truth, or she had a process of kind of nagging and harassing me about things that were um, religious or, you know, and that started when I was in high school, she would call my teachers and other parents and talk about the world ending and who needed to repent and then she was kind of contradictory with what she would allow us to kind of get away with. And so there was always these arguments. And then when it came to my son, she had a kind of a strange obsession with him where she favored him, but she panicked over him constantly and did, it was the ultimate of codependency. She did not want him to ever have a negative feeling, it seemed. So mm -hmm. if he said he you know, didn't feel well at school, she would sneak behind my back and get him out of school because he shouldn't have to take a hard test. And she would make these arguments that were so, to this day, she says, I don't even know what I was thinking or who was in control of me. These arguments were so anti-healthy for him. And I was constantly, I would have to go to school and say, you know, she's not, she can't be permitted to sign him out. Or mm. she would argue with me if I would ground him. If we would take a toy away from him, she would go buy it and bring it over. And was constant... Mm tug of war with her just over my child. And it lasted for about 20 years. I had written and unhooked how she had called me at work one time, 133 times in one week. Wow. And that was over an issue with him that she disagreed in a gift somebody was buying him. But I mean, she would just argue and push and write letters and email and call and to where I would be crazy hmm. and want to be violent. And then when I would, I took the HR called me in the office and said, is there a problem? Your mom has called this many times. They printed me off the um, log of her calls. So I went home and took them to her and said, you, why do you do this to me? Even if you're right, yeah. even if you're right, why are you, this is harassment. And she said, I, I don't, I didn't call that many times. I did not. So I had to show her the proof 
And once I would show her the proof, she would completely change her argument and say, well, I had to do that. You made me do that. You think I want to do that? So Mm. you can't win either way because they're never going to admit it. And once you prove it and nail it down, they change, they they, kind of flip it, the script, Mm -hmm. and it's somebody else's fault. So either way, you never really get to the truth or accountability. And I have come to believe it's because the one truth is kind of masking all of that, that once you start layering down to truth, you've got to start admitting there's things that are sick and wrong and need fixed. Mm. And that was all true within my mom. So I was constantly battling and conflict with her almost every day until I had a therapist say to me, well, why don't you just not argue with her? Mm. You know, what did she do different this time than every other time you argue with her? And I said, well, nothing. Why would you expect her to do anything different? Your expectations are sick. Yeah. So that's, it was kind of a light bulb that came on that I thought, I'm going to do this with her the rest of my life unless I just don't. And I'm expecting her to do something different every time. And she never does. She's just being herself, but I'm like battling with her. I'm never going to get to the bottom of it. So Mm. that set me free. And when you made that switch with the therapist telling you not to argue, um, did you notice any changes? At first, there's always kind of backlash um, when you set boundaries, you know, because things, it takes a minute for things to get healthy. Yeah. And I, and I was real dumb in the beginning. I was just learning all of this. I mean, I was a grown woman running my own office, working in corporate America on my own. But some of these really simple concepts were brand new to me, ironically. One of them being when I started setting boundaries, I would send emails to friends or family members and say, you're not going to do this or that. If you do, I'll respond to this or that. I'm no longer putting up with this or that. Well, then I would get a ton of emails back and it would sound like my computer was, you know, a slot machine going off with everybody responding. What are you talking about? You're, you know, I had to learn boundaries are silent. Boundaries aren't, I don't reach out and set precedents for everyone else and tell them what they're going to obey. I set them within myself and then I just carry them out. Mm. So that was kind of a learning process too. And it took a while. It was a good six or seven years working on myself and navigating these things. I went sometimes wouldn't talk to certain people. I didn't talk to my mom for a few years. Mm. And then I would learn, I'm not going to go back and fix all of this. I'm not going to go back and adjust how she does things. I'm going to work on me. So it was all a process. Yeah. And and it's a long process. You said six or seven years of of discovery and and self-work. Right. So your second book, Unbroken, um, what led you into writing a second book? Uh, was it the success of the first book? Did you enjoy that process of, of kind of putting everything into one platform for, for those to enjoy? Well, I had started a blog that I was putting out about weekly and it was on just different subjects. And I started writing for an organization called allies in recovery, which, um, works with the affected family members. If they teach something called the craft method, which is kind of, um, learning new ways to respond respond in conflict and put the weapons down and urge someone toward treatment. So working on that, I had a couple of people say, I relate to your story, but I don't know, you know, what to do. There's no like instructions what to do. So I wanted to put together something that was kind of a suggested guide to work your way through it, whether, you know, it's a year in the life of somebody who's going through this traumatic experience with an addicted loved one or any other type of adversity. Cause I've been through so many family adversities, whether it's, loss and grief, or it's divorce and abandonment, or you're completely starting over from the ground up, losing a career and rebuilding, whatever it is from the beginning when you feel like you're drowning and everything's hopeless and your life is kind of spiraling to getting your footing, getting support, rebuilding, and then triumph and hope at the end. So I put 
I put the second book together to kind of add to, you know, piggyback on my first book that this is basically how we face these things head on. Okay. Out of them. And, and talking about the ebbs and flows of life, uh, bettering your self-control for the future. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Self-control for sure. Just working on those things. And one thing I, one of my favorite chapters in there is about support. I had studied support in the, in the, in nature, how things like um, redwood trees, they're so tall and huge, but their roots are really shallow. And I had found out that is because they link and they, they lock and they combine so that when the storms come, redwood trees stand together as one and Mm. face them. So that's, I use those examples. There was another example of a dolphin that had become paralyzed and its little family had gathered around it and lifted it up to the water for air. Wow. Um, I'd had a dog that had passed away and it was, um, she had been like a child to me. She'd had a, a back surgery. So I, I carried her in a papoose. I taught her to walk and go to the bathroom again. And then three years later, she had a heart attack. And my two remaining animals, one was a cat and one was a dog that had lived with me for 10 years. They came and sat on either side of me at my desk every day for months and months Hmm. while I worked after she had died. And, you know, before she had died, they sat alongside her like that. Animals are so supportive. And you remember support and empathy and encouragement and compassion. Kindness is kind of what stops the bleeding every day when you're going through a hard time. So Mm. I wanted to write a book about things like that, that I could put out there for people going through hell, that there's these treasures in the midst of this valley that you can learn and you can become aware of. And, uh, and at the end of it, you can reemerge completely triumphant. Mm. And the only way to go through that is, is to not give into the victim mentality. Oh yeah, absolutely not. Not. um, I heard somebody say on a podcast a few weeks ago, that her mom would tell her, you get 20 minutes every two weeks to feel sorry for yourself, and that's it. So she would put it on her calendar, and by the time that day came, she, she wasn't, you know, just kind of frivolous to do that. Absolutely melt down and feel bad and look at things for hard and terrible. Be compassionate with yourself. Don't push yourself if you know you need to spend a day in your pajamas. However, don't spend, you know, day after day after day doing that or feeling sorry for yourself and definitely don't put the blame on anybody else for how miserable your life is. Even if they're causing pain and misery, it's still up to you to take the reins of your responses and your outcomes. Hmm. Yeah. And that, and that goes, plays in right uh, towards what we were talking about, about self-control and how important that is. Um, speaking of self-control, uh, before you went through this, this story of, of addiction and recovery with your family, did you have any interest in uh, the mind or um, psychology or life in general? Or was it, was it really that that brought everything together and got you to, to really look deep down, uh, deep down into yourself? I'd say it was, it was that, but it was that early on because I was aware. Yeah. I'd written in Unhooked that I was aware that things didn't feel or seem normal. And then I was aware when I would go to school or be in other kids' homes that things were different. So I started just analyzing everyone around me. And then I started like kind of turning to books and resources first, and then people and therapists and processes later. This was like, this would lead to that, would lead to this, would lead to that. So that was kind of how I started pursuit of the psychology, I mean, because we're affected in layers, even neurologically when we go through trauma. So I started studying the effects, but I was also, you know, for so many years trying to study how to be normal and how to be sane, best practices for how to have a functional household. I'd had a therapist one time say to me, 
that there was a statistic, I don't know where she got it, but it was um, 89% of society is dysfunctional. And I just Mm. thought, well, (laughs) you know, I'm sure 89% of them are in my family and I'm going to do whatever it takes to be that 11%. Yeah. You know, (laughs) so that was pretty much my goal. And what led me to study psychology was a a desperation, a desperation to be healthy and stable. Mm. And I I, I hear it in your voice. I love your energy. You you have so much passion in this subject. <laughs> that's what it takes. Really. Yeah, that's what it is. Right? And, and I'm sure that your passion and energy uh, leads into others and really helps them out. Um, and in that help, I'm wondering uh, what you've gained out of helping others. Um, some lessons maybe you've learned. That kind of seals the deal on healing is when you're able to give it away. But mm. I've also learned, and I truly believe that a recovery process or healing, it's not one size fits all. I don't give advice. The only advice I give, because people will ask me, well, my son's out here doing this. What would you do? Or my daughter, should I put my husband out? I can't, I don't know what's right for anybody else's life. I don't mm-hmm. even know that a therapist does. Yeah. But I can tell you what I do advise is go to meetings, you know, Naranon, celebrate recovery, something supportive. I know that there's meetings for people that have panic attacks or something called Families Anonymous, which I think is great. Emotional, emotional, anonymous, things like that. Build a support system and, you know, seek your own recovery. But I just, I definitely don't give advice. And that's one thing that I've, I've learned that I can give my experiences. I can share strength and hope. I can absolutely share my failures and what I learned in those areas, mm-hmm. but I don't give any advice. And, and the power of stories, um, you know, right. like you were talking about the dolphins. I still have that image in my, in my head of those dolphins lifting the, the, yeah. the paralyzed dolphin it's up. It's so good. It yeah. is. It is. And that's really what it's about. Um, and, and it's wonderful to hear that you were able to do that for your son. And, and um, you know, it's great to hear that he's doing really well over in California. Yeah. You know, it's pretty amazing. Um, I see examples all the time of just how wonderful he is mm-hmm. and that a lot of our process, you know, and, and I don't give myself credit very often because I do believe in humility, but for what was sowed intentionally into him and taking hard steps when it came to him and making tough decisions that were hard on me, not taking the easy way out, Hmm. not babying him, making him face a consequence all the way through, not taking away consequences or or taking them for him. Those are hard things for a mom, especially when you love your kid and you want them to love you. Hmm. But making those tough choices, I see on this side of it. And, you know, ironically, um, I just saw something play out on his Facebook. He likes to post a lot of things that are, you know, sometimes controversial or political or conspiracy theories, like I told you, but he doesn't post them as if they're concrete truths or as if he's come up with it. He'll post it and say, what are your thoughts on this? Mm. And it's amazing. No matter what side he's coming at it with, people will come at him often with insults or arguments. And so, um, Over the weekend, he had posted something that was, it was a police situation here in town, and it ended up being exactly true what he posted. But when he first posted it, it wasn't on the news yet. So he said, has anybody heard about this or have thoughts? Well, a a kid he grew up with in church started posting and saying, you're the, you're the dumbest person I know. If you you believe anything you'll read, I mean, just like nasty. Mm -hmm. So he wrote back and said, I didn't even say I believed it. I said, who knows this? So anyway, it went on and on. And I just watched him handle it with class and dignity. Now, I'm sure if he sees that person in person, it's going to be maybe, you know, might be a little different. (laughs) 
because he's still a dude or whatever. But but the way he handled it with dignity and grace and wasn't insulting back, and this kid would kind of accelerate his rudeness. And then the people that came in on in his defense from left and right, that one person sent him an actual 911 call that proved it true. Mm. Another person said, you know, was like, I've never seen him be anything but correct and truthful because he researches and, you know, anyway, you know, not to get into the details of it, but watching yeah. things like that play out and seeing that, wow, the person attacking you was raised in a family that you would think had it all together and was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And we had this struggle, but I'm sorry, your character is a million times this person's character. Yeah. Things like that are proof to me that I'm okay with what we went through and the sacrifices were all worth it. Because he's pretty freaking amazing, and I don't know anyone that meets him that doesn't agree. Yeah, and it's amazing how nowadays it seems like if you're if you if you're curious or you throw out ideas, you get attacked. There's a lot of attack on just being curious, and there's so many mysteries out in life and things to be curious about about yourself and and internally and externally. And to be attacked for being curious uh, really is 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 worrisome for me. It just shows really kind of the level of conflict and truth people aren't able to wade into that you can't listen to somebody that might have opposing ideas or challenge you without getting mean and personally attacking them. And one thing he always says is I love putting this stuff out there because I know that's going to come and very few people will say, Hey, jump on a call with me. Let's swap ideas respectfully. But he's starting to get people to do that. And you'll see that play out more on his page. And that's kind of his goal. He kind of experiments socially with that. But it's interesting that we'll watch the cycle from beginning to end. He'll say something and then somebody will come in and and disagree with it. And then he'll ask him just, you know, why do you think that? And they come back nasty Mm. with insults about his intelligence. And then always what they'll do, if he proves what his point is, they'll say you're blocked because, and they just shut it down. And it's like, that is the pathway of conflict is to come in hot and insulting but without intelligent information, and then you just shut down the conversation as soon as you might possibly be proven wrong or challenged. And I, I see that everywhere. Yeah, and that ties right into what we were talking about, about the truth. Some people, uh, you know, they, they don't want to see the truth. They put their blinders on. And almost like your mother did with you, you know, she's, they, 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 when you give them the facts, they switch it towards almost a personal, uh, a, different type of, uh, a different type of attack. Um, Right. I always tell him, first of all, don't ever argue online and social media. Don't ever do it there Mm. because you're just a spectacle. But second of all, if you are going to argue, take, go to a higher level and argue against the facts. Don't ever argue at the person and start insulting them in some rude way of what's ugly or character or intelligence about them because that has nothing to do with the subject. So watching him handle it that way, I don't understand why most people don't. You know, it seems like uh, emotions, uh, yeah, they're not controlled much anymore. And, and the emotions are so high in this country. Um, people and are really struggling. Because if, if I'm not right, I might have to do something or change something. Or the people that have kind of given me the ideas that I'm holding on so fast to, they might be wrong. I mean, there's like levels and layers of it, I think. Mm-hmm. And, but and, if and, you're humble yeah. and you're like that, like I said, maybe it's not probable. And you don't want this or that to possibly be true, but is it possible? Mm -hmm. Could I possibly be wrong? I I tell him that too. Look at the, you've always got to consider the possibility that you are completely wrong and and be okay with it. And how can you love yourself without being truthful for yourself? You have to almost have that tough love, like you said, as a parent with yourself too. 
it's the only way you can grow and, and, and learn and build strength and control. Um, well, yeah, there's no relationship that, really. Yeah. Cause what's real. If you can't look at the truth, you got to mm-hmm. look at the truth. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting subject, especially nowadays with the, uh, the protests and a lot of emotions flying uh, throughout the country, but we won't right. get political. <laughs> right, right. Um, so you're, you wrote the two books, Unhooked yep. and Unbroken. Again, they're available on Amazon if you would like to get a copy. Uh, you also wrote a chapter for a book from The Ohio State University. Uh, tell mm-hmm. a little bit about that. That was they wanted the perspective of somebody from Ohio. Mm-hmm. Ohio has been hit pretty hard by the opiate epidemic. Oh, yeah. I worked with um, Dr. Dan Skinner, who was a professor who put the book together. And from my chapter, it was from the perspective of a, a son that was an athlete. He talked about the town he came from. Sports wasn't a big deal, but when he came to Ohio, everything was Friday night football. So it was a different perspective um, for him with that. And so working those cultural dynamics in, and then also having been from a church family, we were front row in church every weekend. So then to have a mother who was addicted, but in church, and sometimes she was a church speaker. Mm. So all of those dynamics were just kind of putting, opening the fourth wall, and so to speak, as we told our story. So we, I helped them put that together. That book is great. They have people that have gone to prison, people that are doctors, t- what teachers are seeing. They, they gave a lot of different perspectives in there. So we told ours. And one of the things that I talked about in that chapter was that I was an insurance agent and that as a parent, you think you cover the risks. I remember being an agent and going out to people's homes and I would have to look at the railing on their porch or their roof or the foundation. And if there was flaws or cracks, you're at higher risk. And as a parent, you come to believe I build this foundation. I've got this kid in school and sports and church or whatever. You know, there's no cussing allowed. I'm watching over whatever your rules are. Mm-hmm. You think you cover the risk, but then addiction comes in like this monster out of nowhere. We, I always said it was like the, the movie Predator. When you think you've got it figured out and conquered, it shows up in different form. Yeah. When that thing comes in, nobody can control it or predict it or cure it or stop it. You don't know exactly how it came in. It just, whether they experimented with something or had an injury, mm. it comes in and it just takes over. There was no way to cover the risk. Mm. I thought I covered the risk. So that was one thing I covered in that chapter that went out. And how can people find that, uh, that book? It's called Not Far From Me. I believe that's on Amazon as well, or they can send me a message and I can hook you up with Dr. Dan Skinner. There's also a website, a website called Not Far From Me. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, that seems like a very interesting read also. And yeah. uh, how was the experience working with uh, you know, writing a book, almost co-writing a book in a sense, you wrote the one chapter with the university? Um, it was Dr. Dan that put that together with his partner, Berkeley. So they were, it was published through Ohio State. They were phenomenal. They did a lot mm. of the footwork and went and met with people over the phone or in their homes or all over the state. And then they've spoken libraries all over the state. So that was a really positive experience. And they wanted to, you know, because addiction doesn't discriminate and it's in every echelon of society, they wanted to expose that. And especially Ohio kind of being the heart of it all. It's always interesting to me that um, we've read that the first fentanyl overdose happened in Ohio. The book Dreamland was written about Ohio, where it started down in Portsmouth. But the very first recovery meeting took place in Ohio, in Akron, Ohio. So it's like kind of full circle. Ohio truly is the heart of it all. Yeah, how about that? And it's really affected this country. Um, It it seems like we're trying to take steps towards improvement in that area. But um, 
it definitely has an effect on the brain, it seems, and uh, it, it, in the, the chemicals in, in the brain. And our brains always are changing. So, um, you know, if you're adding a, a foreign substance to it, it could affect you in a negative direction without you really doing much. Yeah. And, you know, there's, I, I've heard a doctor say that there is no bad chemicals. There are bad reactions. And one example would be, I don't have a problem with substances or even I can go have wine at a wedding or a beer at a football game and then not touch it again for a year. Mm -hmm. But I have a friend who, if he has wine at a wedding, he's going to be gone for three months. It's going to light up that damaged reward system. And he's right back on track where he was to begin with because yeah. that addiction and alcoholism is progressive and chronic and it's right there where he left it. That thing's doing push-ups when you stop, if you've got those tendencies or the, you know that gene. Yeah. So really, how could you not be affected by a chemical? It's like pouring weed killer on your brain and expecting somebody not to act any different and then judging them for a moral failure. Yeah, and a, another thing, not even taking the chemical, but I've noticed with social media, people seem addicted to social media and that dopamine rush is almost the, the chemical in a sense. Um, I'm wondering I if you put it. Okay, yeah, I was, I was wondering what your thoughts were about addiction towards social media. A lot of the millennials or Generation Zs struggling, um, you know, with their emotions, with self control, with connecting with themselves, with the truth. And I would um, agree that social media interrupts the ability to connect because it's a great way to communicate, but it is it, it is it's easy to quickly delete somebody, block somebody. It, there are so many ways to unfair ways to win an argument based on kind of um, putting blasting information out there and then everybody agrees with it and, and you know against somebody before they know all the facts or maybe they shouldn't even be knowing this relationship ended but people are jumping on board. I mean there's a lot of nasty things that can come from it I think it's a wonderful tool to communicate I think it's a terrible thing when it comes to connecting and when it comes to conflict I wrote a chapter in my second book about conflict and how Stay away from social media. Have the good character and presence of mind not to put conflict on there. Whether you're going to make up with this person or not, respect them enough to be mature and not put your, your issues and conflict on social media because it's a nasty, low-level thing to do. I've seen it done many, many times. I, it really just is gross to me. Yeah, it is. I think that that definitely can be an addiction. But I remember one of the counselors that I was close to in my twenties um, that would kind of walk me through my learning process. We called it untangling because I was learning new ways of, of coming out of the dysfunction. She would tell me when I had an experience with a family member who would, he would sometimes call me. And if I would disagree with him, he would scream and yell and call names. And mm -hmm. she would say, well, he's kind of a rageaholic. He's addicted to rage yeah. or this person seems to be addicted to drama and chaos and that you can be, and you can even hate drama and chaos, but develop, um, it, it increases your adrenaline and cortisol and dopamine mm -hmm. and all of that. You develop an, a dependency upon it because you're used to it. So for yeah. an example, when my son moved out West, we had had so much conflict because of my mom and all these situations that I was used to that adrenaline spike at some point every day when he went and peace came back in. I would look for things to upset me hmm. and then look for things to be mad about. And I would have a way bigger extreme reaction to it than normal because my dopamine reward system was off because I'd been in toxic chronic stress. Wow. So I think there's many things we can be addicted to. Yeah. I was going to bring that up. Emotions, uh, you know, you could be addicted to them, foods, yeah. another addiction. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of addictions. What is your message to somebody that's going through an addiction with a loved one? Um, 
what can they do to, to maybe break through for themselves or the affected um, loved one? Well, one thing that I was told early on is there's a recovery promise that if one person in the family situation does work to improve, the situation is bound to improve. Mm. And when somebody told me that, that me getting healthy, me learning more about it, me learning how to react and respond to it, me causing peace to enter myself and then spill out over to that situation Mm. could cause a positive response. That was kind of like a helicopter rope for me that I grabbed onto. And because I'm codependent and high energy at first, uh, I, you know, was kind of manipulative with it where I would do all of these things to get healthy. And then I would highlight everything I didn't show him or show my mom because I was just so sick with wanting things to be healthy but I really just learned to calm down Hmm. and to get healthy myself. And that did truly end up having a ripple effect. So that is what I would say is first of all, work on your areas of getting healthy, calm down for a few, even if it's just two minutes at a time, go for a walk, go stand outside barefoot, go hold ice in your hand, do something, you know, start giving yourself those windows of peace. I have a friend that came on my podcast that said he started taking time every day to drink tea and he'd never been a tea drinker, but he told himself, if I sit down with this tea and my hands are on this cup, this mug and it's warm Mm. and it's peaceful, there's no chaos that's allowed in those moments. So Mm. he would give himself that every day. And that started expanding more and more to where he was more protective of his calm and peace. And then before, you know, he knew it, that began to grow and he was living in a state of calm. So when you start doing things like that for yourself, and learning how to respond and taking care of you, bringing it back inward, that changes the dynamics of all of it. Definitely. Um, I'm not sure if you know Jordan Peterson, but he wrote yes. a chapter yeah, in 12 Rules to you know, take care of your room before you go out into the world and try to fix the world. And uh, right. I always try to tell people that, uh, and even myself, I remember when I first started learning about psychology, learning about the mind and wanting to help people, I just wanted to go out and help people. But I didn't realize I needed to do my own work and when I started doing my own work, I was like, wow, if I didn't do this, I would be completely off, sending people in the wrong direction, thinking I can fix people. But now knowing all the unique things that help me and how everybody's unique and different, kind of like you said earlier, there's no one, uh, one button fixes all for, 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 for individuals. It's a unique experience for all. Um, you know, th- that self-work really showed me a whole new world and, and, and opened my heart in a sense to, to to truly care about helping people instead of wanting to be the, the fixer or, you know, it, it was mainly about me in a sense at, at first. Yeah. And I think if you bring it back to you, we can tend to get obsessed with what other people need to fix. And I think even if you're a person who's critical and judgmental constantly, you're not healthy. Something mm. needs to heal. I've been in relationships or friendships with people who constantly criticize and nitpick. That's not healthy. Yeah. When you, that just says that you're not working on yourself. That mm-hmm. all, I mean, that's, that's, again, the low-level stuff. You've got to bring it up a little higher. When you bring things back to yourself, and that's not to say ignore consequences or take the blame for anyone's behavior or ignore it and just say, well, I'm going to go drink my tea while you're robbing me blind. Not at all. Yeah. But when you bring it back to yourself, how did I end up in a situation where I'm being taken advantage of or where I'm believing lies or where I'm being talked to this way? And you just kind of slowly start creating those windows of looking inward. It changes everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of people like to blame others, but um, blaming is being lame. I heard somebody say once. <laughs> Who would love that? Huh? I'm feel that. 
<laughs> Alrighty, so we've covered a lot of information, um, and you gave some beautiful tips about recovery and uh, shared a little bit about your story. And I really want to thank you for that. But let's uh, start with a couple quick little fun questions just to piece things up before we head out. Um, One thing I love about life is there's so many mysteries. I'm always learning. um, And there's some mysteries out there that are yet to be discovered. I'm wondering one mystery about mind, body, or life that you wish to have the answer to. Oh, gosh, goodness. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's a big question. One mystery. Um, you know, one thing that is a kind of a mystery, nobody really has the answer, is that if, one thing I think about often is that you'll have people that are born into, you know, not to be crude, but you hear the term the lucky sperm club, where it's like families that are more functional or calm or maybe a little more financially stable or successful mm. and geared toward education or peace or whatever. And then you've got people that are born into terrible circumstances and dysfunction and lack and, you know, taught things that are maybe criminal in nature Mm -hmm. to stop on green and go on red and then released into the world and then blamed for their choices. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the things that I tend to analyze. I know you know, being in elementary school, sometimes I would get frustrated in the classroom and nobody ever looked at the fact that I was, I didn't know what I was going home to every day, but I knew it was going to be chaos and lack and suffering of some kind. And my parents would be in a, you know, their horns would be locked in conflict for hours and hours. So then be seven years old and sitting in a classroom, that's the way to the world. That's tough. How are you supposed to focus? Yeah. So I always kind of wonder the, the great mystery of people that are born into a better setup versus those who aren't. And how do we bridge that gap mm. to where not only do we kind of all live in unity with one another, but create a better way for people who weren't given a chance. Yeah. That's a big one for me. No, that that's yeah, definitely. Um, it, the environment really has an effect on our lives, especially internally and our mental state. And, and I definitely like, feel like I made it out. I worked my yeah. way out. I broke a lot of cycles. I taught my son a, a different way. I broke cycles for him, you know, and identifying them and, sh- and talking to him all the way through so that he wouldn't walk down certain paths that ancestors did. Mm. But I don't know. It's, it's a big, unfair part of life that I, I think about probably every day. Yeah. Yeah. So are there any books or maybe a speech, an article, movie, or song that had an impact on your life? Um, well, I read a book called In the Meantime by Ayanna Van Zant, and that was about, I don't, didn't agree with maybe everything in it, but I got mm-hmm. a lot of powerful information from it. And that was, um, she talked about starting out in the basement of your life and then working your way up to the first floor, then the second floor, then the higher levels. And Mm. that was a way of going back and looking at your birth pattern and when the dysfunction in your family and then your childhood years, she said, we get to our teen years without stopping to pause and look at our childhood years and gain from them. And then we get to our twenties and don't look at our teens. And then we get to our thirties and don't look at our twenties. And maybe by then we're dealing with, we don't like the job we're in or the degree we got or, the marriage we're in or, you know, situations like that, but we never stopped to analyze it. So that really had a profound impact on me. I sat and analyzed it all over a two year period. And now I tend to look back, you know, intentionally over things. What did I learn from there? How did I drop the ball here? Why did this create success? So that was a, a book that was really helpful for me because it taught awareness and intention. And then anything that Brene Brown writes, honestly, I just kind of grab it and run with. Brene Brown. What was the uh, name of the book again? 
which Alanya's was called In the Meantime. In the Meantime, okay. And then Brene's book, her book that affected me the most was Rising Strong. And it's about rebuilding your life after any kind of a setback or terrible situation. So I, I just absolutely loved it. Beautiful. So for you, Annie, any upcoming projects, anything in the future that you're looking towards? I've been slowly finishing my third book. So that'll be um, eventually. And that's another area of recovery, a recovery process. And then I've um, just working on the podcast and I'm still writing articles and putting them out there and getting them published when I send them out and blogging and things like that. I put stuff on my Facebook page as it comes about. And then I do the recovery work during the day with people who have struggled with substance use. Um, So basically it's kind of a daily grind. That's great though. Uh, keeps you busy, keeps you focused and keeps you learning. I'm sure you learn something new um, throughout the process. How can people find you, connect with you, social media um, or websites? My, my email is annieunhooked at Gmail. And then I'm on, I have Annie Highwater Recovery Writer on Facebook. I bank a lot of my stuff there. And then Twitter and Instagram. My dog even has an Instagram now because I got a puppy and he's <laughs> kind of my, <laughs> he's my emotional therapist and I'm a fool over this dog. He's the cutest thing ever. And we got him a day before quarantine. So it was the wow. perfect thing to take that? on right when all of that hit. So um, oh, wow. I'm out there. I respond to, it might not be immediate because I get a pretty good volume now, but I respond to every person that messages me on Twitter or emails me. I have a lot of people that will say, you know, my son's addicted to this or that, I will sit down and, and analyze their email and respond to every sentence mm. of it with hope. So um, I definitely love hearing from people. Beautiful. So everyone listening out there, if you have any questions or want to chat with uh, Annie, learn a bit about herself or her story or anything else, uh, you, you know, her, her messages are open, which is great. Um, Annie, anything else on your mind before we head out? Nope, that's just it. I would just say, no matter what you're going through, there's hope you can benefit from it. Eventually just don't ever give up. Never mm. give up. Don't ever give up. Beautiful. Well, with that, Annie, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. We covered a lot of great information. And if you would like to come on again with your new book, I would love to have you on. Well, great. Thanks so much. I'll have to have you on mine too. Oh, definitely. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Alrighty. Thanks so much.